Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation over 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John with Con Campbell. Well, Scott, we're jumping back into our Story of God commentary series, and today we've got Con Campbell with us, who, um, man, really excited for our listeners to hear what he has to share. Uh, before we jump into the conversation, what do our listeners need to know about Con Campbell? Well, he's um, an excellent young uh, New Testament professor, a specialist in Greek syntax and aspectual theory, so you may have to look those things up, but... Um, He's also uh, had a lot of ministerial experience, evangelism experience. He brings all of that uh, into his life, into his teaching, into his writing. And uh, I didn't know Con Campbell when uh, our Story of God Bible Commentary editors met together, but uh, I believe it was um, Michael Bird said, oh, we have to have him. He's really, really good. And he really, really is good, and he produced a, a very fine commentary for the series. And I think you will see that um, as we talk to him, it's not just about the, you know, the exegetical fine points, but he sees the big picture, the big themes that are important to First, Second, and Third John. Yeah, he's got a pretty sweet accent, too. You know where that comes from? <laughs> He's from Australia. Australia, yeah, you'll you'll yeah. enjoy that. I, I loved how he had to share just the um, perspective of, of John potentially writing from Ephesus and us just being yeah. there recently uh, yeah. really helped me kind of wrap my head around understanding that very world in which he was writing to. So he does a good yeah. job with that. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll uh, enjoy the episode. Thanks for being with us today. Con, we are really glad to have you with us today. Uh, you are a professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I once taught, and you are a specialist in Greek syntax, and I've read a couple of your little books on uh, syntax, and you really impacted me on the imperfect tense. Oh, okay. really? Imperfect aspect. Yeah. Of kind of, uh, or uh, yeah, and then... Um, I'm. Uh, I was really glad when you agreed to write on First John and or the Epistles of John. So we'll we'll go into your commentary in the Story of God Bible commentary on the letters of John. And I'd I'd like to start with a big question, uh, and that one is, um, what were the kinds of things you learned in writing this kind of commentary? Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on the podcast um it, it, you know uh, this is my first full commentary uh to write and it's a, a challenging process but i think what i really learned was uh just you know how john really deeply desires his readers to have fellowship with god and fellowship with one another and i was really struck by that even though there are lots of challenges in 1 John, there are lots of difficult bits and pieces, and the structure in particular is very difficult. I felt that that 
big theme was really clear and and really hit hard that John, as an elder pastor, um, is is really what he wants to impress on people is the importance of fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And that comes through with themes like love and, and truth and sin and repentance and all of that. But also, you know what, I was really struck by the way that fellowship really defines what eternal life is all about. You know, I think we, mm. we tend, we tend to think, you know, eternal life, great. You know, we'll, we'll have resurrection bodies. We'll be without sin. We will be without sickness and, and, and pain and suffering. But really for John, the key thing about eternal life is we get to have uninterrupted fellowship with God. And that's really what it's about. And uh, I was struck by that. And I, I loved thinking about that as I was working on this commentary. You know, writing a commentary like that is, uh, I think, full of surprising adventures in the process. And yeah. uh, I remember when I was young and I, my first commentary was on Galatians. Uh-huh. And even though I had taught it and I had a notebook packed with notes and details and scholarly discussions, it was in the writing of it that two things happened. I learned so much about Galatians. And the second thing I learned was how hard it was to write a commentary. Yeah. You get, every time you finish a passage, it you start all over. There's no you momentum. <laughs> yeah, there's no momentum. From, I mean, there's a little bit of momentum, but you got to go, oh, I got to start all over. Look at the text yeah. and the uh, apparatus and start with the process. Well, it, it's um, hard work. Yeah, no question. Yeah. And I, I look back, you know, I look at a guy like Doug Moo, who I don't know, was he there when you were there? No. I, okay. And Doug Moo, who's been writing commentaries his whole career. Mm. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And then I think yeah. about the people who've written, like Robert Jewett, who wrote on Galatia, on Romans, and I think it was mm. 27 years in the making. <laughs> wow. And I, and I think, I don't, I don't know many people who could last that long for one yeah. commentary. Okay, Khan, um, I know you're really good at this kind of stuff uh, about uh, geography and the Mediterranean. And <laughs> I just got back from... Um, Turkey and Greece and Italy, and Great. we visited. We were in Ephesus, which I think is just a spectacular place. I love Ephesus. And I wonder um, if you could connect. Just I don't know if you've um, if you've thought about this. You probably have. I haven't seen your videos, so I can't tell. Um, I wonder if you could connect John, and Paul, and even perhaps Mary and Ephesus and the kinds of Christian teachings that could be going on in Ephesus. Yeah. Uh, just, just run with it. See, you know, tell us what you think. I think it'd be fun to hear. Well, you know, I was just in Ephesus this summer as well, um, yeah. filming for a documentary on John. And I was thinking about, because the last time I was there, I was filming for the documentary on Paul. And it is interesting to think about Ephesus, you know, through the ministry of Paul, which I think is our default way of thinking about Ephesus, but then right. also to think about it in terms of John's presence there. John was actually buried there and um, just above where the uh, temple of Artemis used to stand uh, on the hill. 
the Selchuk Selchuk Hill. I don't know if you visited there. Yes, we there did. This time. Yes, yeah. we did. So you know that uh, his his tomb is there, mm-hmm. and uh, there was uh, uh, the church, cruciform church built, um, Byzantine church built on that spot with the tomb right in the middle of the uh, cross formation. And then above it on the top of the hill, you've got this uh, Byzantine um, remains of a, a castle. But inside that space, right at the top, there's a little um, chapel, ancient chapel, where which commemorates the spot where the tradition holds that John wrote his gospel. So I, um, I love thinking that through and... Uh, that spot at the top of Selchuk Hill where John, you know, was uh, apparently wrote his gospel just gives you this wonderful 360 degree view across around Ephesus and out to the sea. And I, I think, you know, John's gospel is such a cosmic gospel. Like it's such a big picture piece of literature that it that makes perfect sense to me that he would, sit there at the top of that hill and just look at the world around him from that vantage point. So, yeah, it was interesting. I, um, you know, when John was there, um, Peter and Paul had both been dead for at least 10 years by the time John got there and or around about, I mean, we're sort of guessing a little bit at some of these dates. Yeah, and yeah. so it, it was interesting to think that, you know, in the absence of those two great apostles, and Paul had had such a significant ministry, of course, in Ephesus, and it was the the place where he had his longest visit um, in his missionary journeys, nearly three years in Ephesus. Uh, John kind of takes over as the apostle in residence. You know, he becomes the 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 bishop of the region, if you like. So. On this last visit to Ephesus, it was interesting to think about the fact that Paul had been such a dominant presence in that city, causing that huge riot where the whole city poured into the theater there, and and he stayed there for nearly three years. It's the longest stint in any city uh, on his missionary journeys. And then Paul is there, uh, and a few years later, the Apostle John is in town. So John... Uh, takes over from Paul, and he's the apostle in residence, and he has a ministry to these churches in Asia Minor. Uh, he writes his three letters to churches and an individual um, in in this region where Paul had been so active. And I just think it's really interesting to think about that 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 John, in a way, kind of takes over from Paul, but has his own ministry and his own distinct voice. You know. Hmm. Um. So you would say that John, that John, uh, do you think he knew Paul uh, in Ephesus? Um, well, they shouldn't have overlapped. Yeah. So if if Paul is martyred around sixty five, yeah, AD AD sixty five, and John doesn't leave Jerusalem until around AD seventy, or or a year or two after that point, or or maybe before. Yeah. So, I mean, it's unlikely that they crossed over. Uh, I, I think it's likely that they knew each other, probably okay. from um, maybe crossing paths in Jerusalem, though I don't sure. think Paul ever mentions that. No, no, he doesn't. 
Um, do you think Mary? Do you think Mary was in Ephesus? I think she. You know, there are two competing traditions about that. Of course, there is a house that is claimed. It's a. First, it is a first century house um, that is claimed to be Mary's house. Actually, the the evidence for that is pretty weak, if you ask me. But yeah, I agree. I, th- I think the, the there's also a tradition that she. Uh, stayed in Jerusalem, but I, I, I don't know. I could I could go either way on on Mary coming with John. Certainly, Jesus, you know, according to John's gospel, puts Mary into John's care, mm-hmm. and and so if she's still alive, it would make sense that yeah. she would go with him to Ephesus. Yeah. Now, on uh, let's just say there's a a Pauline gospel presence represented in Colossians, Ephesians. Mm. Uh, and a Johannine type gospel or theology present. It mm. just it, it's to me it's really fascinating because this is this is uh, it's a big city, but you yeah. you got to think that the Christians were not that numerous in Ephesus, yep. even by the end of the first century, or when John gets exiled to Patmos. Right. And you got to think that there uh, there's a lack of vocabulary. In John, that sounds like Paul, a lack of, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to me to think about these two major figures for us uh, Mm. together at the same time, and yet not a whole lot of uh, evidence of fellowship, as it were, at the language level. Well, yeah, I think that's certainly true. They definitely have their own idiolect very strongly, their own style of writing and thinking and speaking. But one way that they do overlap, I think, especially with Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 John, is the John uh, speaks about in him all the time, you mm-hmm. know, in the Son. There's mm-hmm. this union with Christ theology, and he doesn't use the phrase in Christ, in Christo, the way that Paul does. Mm-hmm. But Paul also says in him, you know, referring to Christ. And, and there is this real uh, mutual indwelling theology that the two of them share uh, they express it in slightly different ways but i think to my mind uh it's similar enough that you can see they're t- they're talking about much the same thing and uh i think that that sort of fits the ephesian context in particular very well because this is a very spiritual city you know it's the yeah, yeah. the guardian of the temple of artemis and and the kind of gateway to uh asia minor and all the yeah. Yeah. religions and so on that, that existed at that time. So, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to that way of thinking of the people at that time. Um, some of our uh, listeners will know and some will not know. So I want to say a, a few things here. Is Khan mm-hmm. is one of the world's leading thinkers about union with Christ. He has a big book with Zondervan on it. And don't you have a couple more planned in the works to, to fill this out. Along with Michael Gorman, I would say you two are the leading New Testament scholars on participation well, and union with Christ. So so that you uh, bring that to our attention uh, is not just a, a, a happenstance, but something that's deeply involved in the way you're thinking about the New Testament. Yeah, well, that's right. You, know, you touched on this early, Con, but I'd like to return just a little bit different uh, from a different angle. Uh, if you were to uh, advise 
young pastors or older pastors, preachers, yeah. who are going to preach on First John, Second John, Third John. Uh, what are the three big themes that you would say these have to be touched on, and how they connect with uh, with the church today? Yeah, great question. I think the three big themes, if I were just to choose three, would be truth, love, and fellowship. Uh, and that means fellowship with God and with each other. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's so much material, especially in 1 John, but actually in all three letters, uh, that address those themes in a, in a very kind of direct way. Um, now, the, the challenge for the preacher is uh, John's style of writing is yep. kind of rec- it's recursive. So he keeps coming back to the same themes again and again and again. And the effect that that has when you sit down and read 1 John as a reader is you really, you know, the theme really hits you and you really are impressed by it. The problem it creates for the preacher, of course, is you're going to start to sound repetitive if you're just preaching through the letter in an expository fashion bit by bit, you know, it's yeah, kind of like, wow, yeah. wow, this really sounded like the sermon from two weeks ago. So <laughs> you, you, you have to, I think, you know, what I would say to the preacher at that point is first, as with any book you're going to preach through, make sure you know what the whole thing says, right? Before you start. That's right. So that, That's you, right. Don't, so that, so that you don't get into trouble two chapters in and realize, well, wait a second, I, I've got a problem here. Um, and the other thing to say is that even though these themes recur, each time they recur, there's something a little different. And so what the preacher should do, I think, is first, yes, acknowledge, yeah, we're on the theme of truth again, okay, and this is a recurring theme. But notice this little added extra feature here in in chapter two on, on truth, you know, and so, and what, and that will preach because you can say, see, we're, we're on the same thing. We're, we're, we've been reminded of the same theme, but we're, we're given something new and fresh to think about related to this theme. Well, I would, I would agree with you. I taught, I um, read through first John with a group of about four or five students in the last year, and they were young students and they were, uh, uh, it, a couple chapters in, and they were pretty happy because they weren't getting so much. They weren't getting bombarded with new vocabulary. They, right. Things were starting to sound familiar. Uh, they also noticed the um, repetitiveness of it. Uh, yeah. And I learned this in college from a little commentary by an old R.C.H. Lenski who had this funny diagram, uh, like a spiral. And that's oh. how John operates. It's it's a spiraling yeah. effect going back and forth. And right. it. And it really helped me, uh, but um, I've never I've never taught First John in a, any kind of systematic way. I've never preached on First John in a systematic way. So, and I'm sure you have, but the uh, the that whole idea of recurring and maybe pulling out themes and developing truth for a mm-hmm. while, and then developing love, and then developing fellowship mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. could help. Uh, yeah. In our day, I don't know if you have any more you want to say about that. No, no, that's good. Yeah. Okay. okay. The um, when I was reading First John with the students, um, I I encountered theological questions like Calvinism, Arminianism, with some of the lines, 
issues about heresy and truth, and some of mm -hmm. our students were taking a systematic theology course, so that was exciting to them. Um, but there are some things about John that I wonder, uh, because, Khan, uh, of all your experience with the younger generation, I wonder uh, how you think this book would connect to what I often call the skinny jeans crowd. <laughs> yeah. And I see you. Crowd, Sometimes yeah. you kind of wear them yourself. You're you're of that you're of yeah. that age. Uh -huh. But you know I'm they're you. they're progressives. They're concerned with mm -hmm. justice, and they're mm -hmm. concerned with the public sector. Yeah. Um, you think this book would work for First John? You think it would work for him? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily the most natural book to go to for that crowd. But I think there's a lot that the book would say to that crowd. Um, one th one thing is um, John is like his rhetorical style is pretty confronting. Like he yeah. doesn't really nuance things the way this is another difference. So I'm always comparing with Paul, of course, right? But Paul is always nuancing what he says, you know, and and expecting a rebuttal and then answering that rebuttal and and then defending and backing up and you know explaining and he's always doing this, you know. Whereas John just puts things out there in black and white, you know, and it's like, there's only light and there's darkness. There's no in between. There's only truth and the lie. There's no in between, you know, and, and it just really forces you, I think, to kind of get real about what's what. And I think that says so much to this current generation that, you know, we, we, we'd prefer it's much more trendy to sort of like opt for the gray, you know, to say, well, it's nuanced, you know, and it's, and of course life is nuanced and the realities are nuanced, but John just like, he just doesn't let you sit on the fence. He sort of just pushes you to choose sides. I mean, like and, in verse chapter two, verse three, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commands, whoever right. says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the yeah. truth, I mean, that's, that gets your it's, attention. It's strong, you know. One but, of my students he, said he preached on some of these texts, and the people in the church got irritated with him. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can understand why. Yeah, but, yeah. But, see, the thing is, though, I mean, John also says that if you pretend that you do not sin, you're a liar. Yeah. So he kind of puts both things out there strongly. He says, if yes. you sin, you're a liar. If you don't. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I think you kind of have to, like, understand the, the internal dynamics and the way that his rhetoric works. Like, some of it, I think, is rhetorical. He's just trying to push his readers, you know. But he also knows that life is a little more nuanced than that, too, at the same time. So, anyway, yeah. I, I think that that has a lot to say i personally find it very challenging because he just puts it out there he doesn't let you off the hook um yeah. and and you've got to like say well yeah i've got to be serious about this you know have you have you explored the rhetoric this way i mean have you written anything on the uh let's see the heavy-handed or the dualistic or the either or rhetoric of john or this is just you just say this on a regular i mean i say this when when i'm reading it with students but i haven't Set yeah. down, just worked it out. I, I haven't written on it, but you know, it's something I've thought about writing on. Um, yeah. Maybe down the, maybe down the road, you know. Yeah. Because it is fascinating. Yeah. Well, 
Uh, Khan, you've done, uh, you've given us a plenty of time here, a lot to think about. Uh, in closing, I wonder if you would uh, reflect just briefly a word or two on things that uh, you wouldn't want people to miss uh, about John or mm. final thoughts on John, some things that you say, well, I didn't get to talk about this, but I'd like to say some. Well, I think I would, thanks, Scott. I, I would just reiterate how important love in particular is for John. And, you know, he says, if you see your brother in need and you don't feel compassion, the love of God is not in you. And for me, that sounds like to me, he's been thinking about the, the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. The mm -hmm. Good Samaritan feels compassion, even the same cognate, the same root word is used there. And uh, John is saying, if you're not like the Good Samaritan, you don't even know God. Like, mm -hmm. And we just need to be reminded of that, I think, in this, in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. that's... Uh... Well, it's a sobering thought, too, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, yesterday I was looking on the Internet and someone I, I really have grown to appreciate, don't always agree, but I appreciate uh, Fleming Rutledge. Mm -hmm. And she's got this big, beautiful book on Romans. And I saw mm -hmm. and I don't even know if she was involved in this. There was a picture of her and it was boycott something. And I thought to myself, well, there's Romans 14 that's telling people to welcome one another when they differ. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I think we just need to see that our brothers in need are not just physical needs, but there's all kinds of needs. And yeah. if we develop uh, a good Samaritan approach to people of all sorts, mm -hmm. uh, I think we'll also we start touching on that fellowship theme that uh, John uh, brings up. So, yeah, well, it's like. Yeah, I was, I was going to say it's like your book, The Fellowship of Difference, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, and John, sometimes you think he doesn't want the difference around, but uh, the people that he would call different, I think, are out there theologically. He just thinks that they're denying the gospel. It's not just. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, Con, right. I appreciate. Um, I know your schedule is starting to get busy, starting to think about. Uh, your future, but I appreciate you taking time to join us to talk about this commentary that you've written. Excellent commentary, first, second, third John in the Story of God Bible commentary. And I hope you have uh, a great summer of productivity as you continue to work on uh, union in Christ. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with you.